Louis gripped his coffee mug, the liquid inside slowly getting colder in his hands. They'd been called in early, very early, and the usual office chatter had been replaced by hushed conversations held rapidly behind closed doors. Yes, there was something new in the air at the Pasteur Institutes today. A tension, a sense of unease. He was picking up more whispers about the cases in Guinea. Of course, everyone had known about those since the start of the year, but these rumours were different. These rumours were saying that the unknown illness, well, it wasn't unknown anymore. Jana, do you know what's happening? As his colleague walked past, he caught her eye and murmured his question in a muted, secretive tone. They've confirmed it, Louis, this morning. It's a Ebola virus, and it looks like it's spreading. Welcome to 2014, and the last episode in our history of pandemics. The outbreak we're focusing on today is one you're likely to remember, both because it happened so recently and because the disease has never really gone away. While the events we'll cover ended in 2016, this virus has caused an outbreak nearly every year since. We are, of course, talking about Ebola. And given our discussion at the start of the series about whether this may have been the disease that caused the plague of Athens, we have in some ways come full circle. Our guides today have been working at the forefront of tackling the Ebola virus. Dr. Kevin de Kock, whom we've already met, served as the team lead at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for their Ebola response in Liberia. And Dr. Katie Ewart, is currently a senior immunologist for Oxford's Ebola vaccine trials. First though, as we often do, let's check in with Dr. Blanchet Oguti about what this disease actually is. Ebola virus disease is a severe disease caused by the Ebola virus, which is a member of the phylovirus family, and it occurs in humans and also other primates. The disease emerged in 1976 almost simultaneous outbreaks in the DRC and Sudan at the time. The incubation period is around 2 to 21 days. At the onset of the illness, you have a non-specific picture, fever, headache, joint and muscle pain, sore throat, intense weakness. Sometimes there can be diarrhea and vomiting present. Some people develop rash, red eyes, hiccups. They can have deranged kidney and liver function and also internal and external bleeding. Ebola virus disease is fatal in about 40 to 90% of all clinically ill cases, but this de depends on the virus species, also how old the person is, and loads of other host factors. And it was fascinating to hear Blanchet and then Kevin and Katie talk through what we do and still don't know about where Ebola might have come from. There are no species of Ebola several known species of Ebola, four of which have been known to cause disease in humans. It's thought to be a zoonosis. So that's an infectious disease which is caused by a pathogen that has jumped from a non-human animal to a human. Although the natural reservoir is unknown, despite extensive investigations, currently non-human primates have been seen as the source of human infection. However, they're not thought to be the reservoir because when they develop Ebola, they also get fatal illnesses and they die. And essentially, usually when you have um, an animal reservoir, they're called a reservoir because they tolerate the pathogen really well. And that means then that they 
they live longer and therefore are able to then act as a source of of infection for other species. So no one knows exactly what the reservoir is. The virus, we don't know the natural reservoir. It's probably a bat, it's probably a fruit bat. It's a very similar virus to Marburg virus and the, the reservoir is more definite for Marburg, but it's probably a fruit bat. And it's, it's, it's an infection that's, you know, natural in the forest and there is a reservoir there. We must expect that there will be further outbreaks and we have to be able to contain them. I don't know if, if it's bat meat that's definitely been confirmed. I must admit, at the time, the, the anecdote was that it was a kid playing in a tree where bats roosted and there was lots of bat feces around and that it might have been picked up in contaminated feces that way. The, the first human case in any Ebola outbreak is usually through contact with blood or secretions or organs or bodily fluids from an infected animal. That's usually the first case. And I think the first case in West Africa was likely to be via exposure to bats. Then the virus becomes transmitted from person to person through direct contact with blood, secretions, organs and bodily fluids. And people can also become infected if they come into contact with objects, needles, soiled clothing, things that have been contaminated with infected secretions. That's why healthcare workers tend to be the most affected subgroup of people during epidemics. Then you also have some cultural practices which play a role in transmission, which I think has been mentioned before. So you have traditional burial practices. So mourners come and they have direct contact with the bodies. They wash the deceased. And the bodies of those that have died of Ebola still are highly infectious with Ebola. And I think in the West African outbreak, this, this cultural practice did cause the propagation of the of the outbreak. We'll soon talk about the 2014 outbreak. But first, I wanted to ask Kevin when we first discovered how deadly a threat Ebola posed. I mean, the first recognized epidemic, which really has sort of gone down as a legend almost in uh, you know global health history, was in 1976 in the Equateur province of Western DRC, Northwestern DRC in a small settlement called Yambuku. There was a Belgian missionary station with a hospital and a school and about 18 missionary staff, nuns and priests. An outbreak of an unknown disease occurred late in the year in the autumn. I think it was a school teacher who, um, I, I may need to be corrected on that, but a, an individual came into the hospital and died. Then um, other hospital staff and other patients became ill and died. And it was apparent within a few weeks, a very severe epidemic was occurring. The Ministry of Health in Kinshasa was alerted and sent a, a team. And long story short, an international investigation was mounted. The virus was isolated. It was called Ebola after a, the name of a local river. And it was a, um, you know, a, a very severe outbreak, widely described and talked about was wrapped up within a few weeks or months. A lot of field investigations, I think there were there were over 300 cases and something like 280 deaths by the time it was all over. And that was the first documented outbreak. Something like 11 out of 18 or so of the missionary staff actually died. But since 1976, there'd been about 29 or so 
documented outbreaks. One very interesting observation that I think merits more attention or discussion is that of those 29 outbreaks since 1976, they've accounted for close to 35,000 cases cumulative. Over 90% of those cases have actually occurred in the last six years. The huge outbreak in West Africa, and then the second largest outbreak was the DRC outbreak in Eastern Congo from 2018 to 2020. So, I mean, that, that's striking. It suggests something's changed or something's different. The West African outbreak resulted in something like between 28 and 29,000 cases and between 11 and 12,000 deaths. A huge geographic area affected, including cities and including capital cities. I mean, Conakry in Guinea, Freetown in Sierra Leone and Monrovia in Liberia all had outbreaks. You know, all of that was pretty unprecedented. And then in DRC in 2018 to 2020, again, over 3,000 cases, very, very large geographic area and cities affected because places like Butembo and Beni, which many people won't have heard of. I was absolutely staggered when I went to Butembo and saw that this is a city of a million people or so. So things have changed. And, you know, if you the, the simple way and the, the classic way of thinking about disease epidemiology is that it's the interaction of the agent, that's the virus, the host, that's us, um, in, I mean, uh, in, in, in human epidemics, and the environment, which includes the social environment. And you, you know, you have to ask, well, why, why did, why do we have the outbreak in West Africa? That's, that's the farthest West that Ebola has ever been described. Apart from the, the big outbreak, the only time it had been described in West Africa was a, in a Swiss veterinarian in the 1990s. And she got infected uh, doing an autopsy on a dead chimpanzee who died in the Thai forest. Chimps get affected by Ebola and the, their groups can be severely affected. So what changed uh, to, to push it that far west? And why these huge geographic areas? And I think one of the reasons, I, th I think one of the issues for the, the geographic extension is population mobility, not least because of motorcycles. You go to you go to the DRC in a place like Goma, it is just staggering, the thousands and thousands of motorcycles and the distances they can travel. So it's, it's a rather striking observation, two striking observations, the geographic extension and the uh, very large outbreaks, I think merit more notice. It's fascinating what kinds of things can play a major role in the spread of disease. Moving on to the focus of today's episode, I asked first Katie and then Kevin what we know about how the 2014 outbreak began. So the first case in this outbreak was thought to be a, a young child, a toddler, somewhere in very rural Guinea in December and about yeah, in December 2013, who became the first case to be identified. And there was a small number of cases of diarrhea in that population. And it created a small alert in that area, but nothing, you know, massive. And then it was confirmed after the disease had actually spread to Conakry in, in sort of March of the next year. And by that time, it was already in, you know, a, a major city and the outbreak was declared shortly after that. But those first few cases were kind of identified retrospectively, if you like. They were identified as an unidentified disease, but not necessarily thought to be Ebola. Well, retrospectively, the first case probably occurred just before Christmas in 2013 in Guinea, uh, in the forest area of Guinea, in a 
little village called Meliandu. And now that forest area is close to where the three countries, the boundaries of the three countries come together with uh, Sierra Leone Li and, and Liberia, Lofa County in Liberia. Within a few weeks of that initial case, and this is retrospective analysis by a WHO investigator trying to you know, trace what happened. Within a few weeks, there had been two or three further generations of cases. Infection had reached the town of Gwekedu in Guinea and very quickly had reached Conakry, the capital. All of that was in the early months of 2014. In the latter half of March, some cases were reported from Liberia from Lofa County up in the north. And uh, there was actually an investigation by uh, an international group, uh, a colleague of mine, Joel Montgomery, who was working in Kenya. Uh, I was the country director, so I was his, his immediate boss locally. He was asked to go to Liberia and went for a couple of weeks. And it seemed that the outbreak was, was dying out. You know, there was no major, there did not appear to be a major emergency. But in the following months, things changed. And clearly, you know, the world did not pay enough attention. It began to fester in Sierra Leone and cases were increasing in uh, Liberia. I remember actually in late June reading, uh, there was CDC report, there's a, you know, an internal daily uh, update of epidemics going on around the world. I remember reading about you know, ongoing transmission apparently in Guinea and Liberia and thinking, you know, really we ought to be doing, I think it sounds like more ought to be being done about this. I actually wrote this to uh, some of my senior colleagues back in Atlanta. Anyway, we, around the same time, we actually got a request from the Ministry of Health through the US Embassy in Monrovia, a request to CDC for assistance. I happened to be back in Atlanta in early July and I was asked, well, can you go to Liberia? And I said, well, okay. I actually arrived there. I, I remember exactly because it just happened to be my sister's birthday. I arrived on the 16th of July. I flew from Kenya, arrived on the 16th. And within a couple of days, a few other people arrived, four or five EIS officers, these guys or women doing their two-year uh, initial training program. And we took it from there. So where did you start? You know, you arrive in a place and you sort of, <laughs> you, you have to figure it out for yourself. I mean, there is a... There is a standard way, a logical way of investigating an, an epidemic. And it's the best analogy for it is it's, you know, as a, as a medical student, you're taught how to examine a patient in clinical medicine. And there's a, there's a you know, into how to take a history and how to examine a patient. And there's a very systematic way of doing it. And the same is actually true for an outbreak. There's some very logical series of steps. You know, the first question is, is there an epidemic? It's like sort of asking, is this patient really sick or not? Sometimes you get asked to investigate or to, to go somewhere and actually there isn't an epidemic. It's just that reporting practice has changed or you have a, a new keen public health person who, who actually does his job or something like that. Is there an epidemic? Is it due to what you think? It's, is, it, is it due to what you've been told it's due to? Is there a case definition? And can you organize the data in time, place and person? When did it start? What's And, and in time, the classic thing to do is to draw an epidemic curve. Place, where is it? Person, who's affected? Age, sex, and other demographic characteristics. So, you know, you try and organize yourself that way, but 
that's easier said than done. And it certainly was much easier said than done in Liberia initially, and in fact, in the whole epidemic, because you look at an epidemic curve uh, of the outbreak, the whole West African outbreak, and you know we've we've published one. There are published versions of it, and you sort of look at it and you think, well, how close to reality is this really? Because of underreporting, underrecognition, inadequate laboratory capacity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the figure of the overall figure I gave of uh, you know twenty eight thousand six hundred and forty six cases. How accurate is that? I'm not really sure. I suspect it's an underestimate, but by how much is impossible to say. I was keen to hear more about Kevin's personal experience during those early days of the outbreak. The early situation in Monrovia was truly extraordinary, as I've said. Firstly, the country is so very, very weak. It had gone through two civil wars and infrastructure was very weak, very poor physical infrastructure, still a lot of damage from the fighting and so on very few highly trained individuals you know again one of the one of the 10 weakest countries on earth in in relation to development human development and and capacity and literally every day <laughs> those first 10 days i was there were remarkable because every day something astonishing would happen for example i had been there less than a week a colleague and I worked particularly closely with, I mean, we had the EIS officers, had to assign them tasks and so on. And I worked, uh, uh, the most senior of this group of folks who was with me was a colleague called Satish Pillay. And Satish was really the sort of, he was he was a linchpin in, in our work. He and I would go to the task force meeting at the Ministry of Health and they had formed a task force. And we'd go every day and it was rather disorganized. Anybody could come. There might be as many as 80 people in the room. Uh, sometimes the president showed up and the minister was there and somebody ran the meeting and there was an agenda. But the next day, there wouldn't really be any follow-up and it would sort of be a, a repeat of the day before. And I said to my colleague Satish after a few days, I said, look, this isn't going to work. What we really need is an incident management system. Now, an incident management system is a very structured way of dealing with emergencies and it's it's how cdc does it when we we have an oper an emergency operations center in atlanta and when there's a severe health event that that center gets activated it's sort of the nerve center of the response if you will the information center there is one person in charge the incident manager with a very structured organizational structure underneath him or her to deal with logistics, in, in this case, with epidemiology, with laboratory, with communications, et cetera, et cetera. And the incident manager reports upwards to the minister, the president, the CDC director, whoever. whoever. But it was a very structured system. And I, I said to him, look, this isn't going to work. We have to go and see the minister and uh, advise him to, uh, to change the structure and have a, an incident management system. I remember very clearly, I think it was on a Wednesday, it was about a week after it arrived, went to his office on the third floor of the Ministry of Health, sat down, literally opened my mouth when the secretary came in and said, we have to evacuate the building, the building's on fire. So the minister, goes, who's a, who was I think a 76 or 77 year old surgeon, he was a very good man actually, very good man. He sort of starts shuffling around his computer and so on. And I, 
I said to Satish, we, we got to get out of here as I heard, started hearing people shouting and more commotion. And I saw people streaming out of the building through the window. So we got down the stairs and by now there's smoke in the hallway, in the, in the stairwell. And it actually made, made us cough. Got out of the building and you know, hundreds of people in the car park and get our folks together, find all our CDC folks and head out pretty smartly in you know, the two or three vehicles we had. And it later turned out that somebody had actually piled all the plastic chairs together in the conference room where we had been meeting, poured kerosene over them and set the building on fire. I never quite found out what the reason was, although rumor was that it was a disgruntled or affected member of the public who had lost a relative to Ebola and was just very angry that about the whole situation. But it sort of set the tone of the whole environment and that the the element of fear that was in the air, I mean, the tension that you could literally feel wherever you went. It was remarkable. And it's, I, it was something I, despite many years of experience, it was something I'd never experienced to that degree. So, but every day something else would happen that you think, I, I just can't believe this is happening. It was uh, around that time, the, the very famous episode of the rather senior, well-connected Liberian individual who flew to Lagos, visibly ill flew to Lagos, collapsed in the airport, was taken to a hospital. A correct diagnosis was made by uh, the consultant physician in Lagos, but a secondary cluster of infections of Ebola was established in Lagos. And I think the total number of cases were, I can't it was 18 or 20, something like that. Fortunately, uh, only two or three generations of cases. Nigeria responded very, very well to that outbreak, contained it. The consultant physician who correctly made the diagnosis died from Ebola. And the fact that they got on top of it so quickly was unquestionably the field epidemiology training program, the capacity that had been built and the resources of the polio eradication initiative in Nigeria all contributed in a major way to contain that epidemic, very that outbreak very quickly. I mean, the thought of Ebola spreading in Nigeria you know, as Lhasa has done, for example, this, the thought of Ebola spreading, it would be, you know, truly frightening. And very quickly, Kevin got used to cooperating with other organizations to try to get the outbreak under control. One of the first things you do when you arrive, obviously, is go and introduce yourself and look around. You know, is this really Ebola? And how do we know? Where's it being tested, etc.? So, you know, we'd done a bit of all of that and had visited a couple of the local hospitals including a facility called ELWA, which stands for Eternal Love Africa. It was a faith-based organization that ran the hospital. And they had seen some Ebola cases and had set up a very rudimentary Ebola treatment unit. Now, the, the, folks, the, the folks who are really experienced in dealing with Ebola treatment and looking after patients, which is not what CDC does, a group that really is well recognized for this is MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières. And MSF were heroic in West Africa, but by this time, very, very stretched. They had been active in Lofa County uh, and across the border in, in Guinea, in Gwekedu, but they were absolutely stretched. And what they did rather, and this actually illustrates the, the, the uniqueness of this outbreak, of this epidemic, they had worked with an, another organization called Samaritan's Purse, which is an American faith-based organization. Now, politically and philosophically, MSF and Samaritan's Purse are about as 
different as chalk and cheese. Uh, Samaritan's Purse was actually set up by the evangelist Billy Graham's son. It's a very evangelical organization. They are very connected, very well connected politically to the religious right uh, in Washington. They've done some very, very good work in many different places. They had worked with MSF to get their staff who'd been in Liberia for a very long time and knew the country well. They had worked with MSF to get trained up in Ebola and be able to set up an ETU, an Ebola treatment unit, and care for patients. Anyway, a few days after the ministry episode I described, I was asked to chase up a lab result by Samaritan's Purse colleagues, because we were helping, we were coordinating lab work, not actually doing it, but had managed to sort of persuade people to work together and stuff. So I chase up this result and get it to, re to then eventually learn that actually it was a false name and that the actual specimen came from the lead doctor in the Samaritan's Purse group who had woken up uh, on a Tuesday or so with fever, had isolated himself and eventually got tested for Ebola and yes, lo and behold, was infected. Now this was the first time that a expatriate health worker, other than you know those initial nuns and priests who died in Yambuku, to my knowledge, this was the first time an expatriate, certainly in modern time, that an expatriate health worker had gotten infected. And we then had to figure out what to do. I mean, it wasn't my decision, obviously, but we, frankly, the, we did not have in place a system for dealing with the now increasing number of healthcare workers from outside, what to do with them if they got sick. Long story short, Samaritan's Purse were able to evacuate the doctor Kent Brantley to Atlanta, to Emory University, which is right next to CDC, to the hospital in Atlanta, where they had set up a unit that could care for Ebola patients. And he was evacuated. There was a second, actually there were two other Samaritan's Purse infections. One was a Liberian hygienist who died, and one was a, an American nurse, Nancy Witterbol, who also got evacuated and also survived. So this was all in about the first two weeks of 10 days, two weeks of being there. It was a pretty dramatic situation. It certainly sounds dramatic. Meanwhile, back in Oxford, the work quickly began on researching this disease and what might be done about it, as Katie recalls. Yeah, so the samples from that first outbreak made their way to the Institute Pasteur as they're a kind of regional reference centre. So anything that's kind of of a viral hemorrhagic fever will go to a reference centre for presumptive identification and then as soon as a case of a disease like Ebola is identified then you know you're going to let the WHO know that's a standard obviously standard procedure. At that time it was then already spreading widely through West Africa to the two neighbouring countries of uh, Liberia and Sierra Leone. It was rapidly established in the capitals which was one of the things that kind of sets this apart from other outbreaks that we've seen and really by July it was beginning to become apparent that this was going to be a bit more than you know usual handful of cases in a remote region. I went on holiday to France on the 1st of August at which time the word Ebola was not widely mentioned in this institute. And I was away for two weeks and by the time we came back, we were well on our way to, you know, undertaking some work to participate in evaluating some vaccines that were available. But before vaccines could play a role, the teams on the ground were working on more standard public health interventions. 
Historically, these outbreaks have always been brought under control through community engagement and, and basic public health measures. You know, there are no silver bullets for these types of diseases, even with vaccines, because they are hard to access places with poor infrastructure, which means even if you've got a vaccine available, as we often talk about with, with vaccine deployment, it's that last mile, five miles, 10 miles of delivering the vaccine that's always the most difficult and those problems persist. So in terms of interventions and control measures, prior to vaccines. I mean, if you look at most of the outbreaks that have happened in Central Africa, they've been brought under control through the usual processes of contact tracing, safe burials, implementation of uh, better sanitation and all those those real basic tenets of, of public health and epidemiology, really. Let me just start by quickly saying, how do we actually control Ebola with, you know, with what we know today? The basics are the same. Isolate the sick, safely bury the dead, follow the contacts and isolate them immediately if they get sick. That it is the isolation of the sick that drops the basic reproductive rate below one and extinguishes, will extinguish transmission. And you probably, from the modeling that's been done at CDC, you probably need to achieve 70% or so rapid isolation within three days of symptom onset to, you know, to get there. It's a lot more difficult than it sounds especially in these difficult areas. In addition to those three things, we have to strengthen infection control in healthcare settings because in some situations, there's a lot of transmission in healthcare settings. Probably in West Africa, between 10 and 15%, probably 10% or so of people with Ebola and deaths were actually in healthcare workers. So strengthen infection control, provide treatment for the people with Ebola, and we now have better therapeutics the, particularly the monoclonal antibody preparations. And finally, we have a vaccine. So vaccinate the contacts of cases and vaccinate healthcare workers. And increasingly today recognized, vaccinate the contacts of survivors because survivors can harbor the virus and sometimes transmit it sexually or actually also rarely suffer recrudescence. So those are the basics of control. However, as Professor Brian Angus outlines, these basics of control are often easier to implement in theory than they are during the practical reality of a pandemic. Because, um, I mean, again, what, you, what, what tend, tended to happen often in West Africa was people would run away, um, you know, and for, if there's an Ebola outbreak, they would want to get as far away as possible. You know, perfectly understandable. But as far as transmission of the disease was concerned, that was one of the worst things you could do. But again, asking people to stay, stay and potentially stay and die because there's no treatment is, is very difficult. And again, you have to think what you would do in that situation as well. How would you react to, to being told to do that? And similarly, how would you react to being told to do something completely against your culture, completely against religious beliefs, for example, to avoid a disease that no one has actually explained to you. And so that was very difficult. And I say particularly, I think it's difficult when it relates to things like sexual health, but also relates to funeral rites as well. And, and a lot of a lot of things have been, are, seem to be related to culturally how societies deal with dead bodies, particularly, and transmission of these things. And I also think it's interesting that, that something should evolve to take advantage of that weakness. So HIV particularly found that niche in sexual promiscuity. Ebola seemed to find a niche in funeral practices. And it always seems to be that infectious diseases particularly find a weak spot that, that we've got. And 
and multiply within that within that weak spot. That isn't the only challenge to tackling the rapid spread of a disease. Weak medical infrastructure within a country, alongside the concurrent return of other diseases, can make this an incredibly difficult situation. The proportion of doctors to people in, in these kind of countries is, 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 is ridiculous. Uh, I think it's something like 50,000 patients per doctor in Sierra Leone compared with something like 400 patients per doctor in the US. So just the capacity and the general infrastructure to triage that information and escalate it up to somebody in the National Ministry of Health, for example, who's actually going to do anything about it is, is, is really minimal. As soon as you then have an outbreak of something like Ebola, the first thing that happens is the very minimal existing public health work that is going on. So things like, you know, childhood vaccinations, malaria prevention, all of those things just stop. So in addition to things like Ebola, you have resurgence of diseases like malaria, measles outbreaks, all those things then start to, to break down alongside to make a pretty dire situation a lot worse. And it takes time for things like, you know, vaccination campaigns to catch up even once the outbreak itself is contained. I think the first thing to say is the continent is extremely heterogeneous. I mean, we tend to sort of, you know, in global parlance, we sort of tend to treat Africa as just one big village where, you know, everybody lives at the same level of subsistence and it's pretty poor. And that's just such a misrepresentation. It is such a heterogeneous continent in, you know, in many, many different ways, in culture, economies, peoples and disease. So, I mean, to go back to Ebola, when I arrived in Liberia in mid-July in 2014, I was truly shocked. And that's a word I very rarely use in, in medicine. I, you know, I, <laughs> I always tell people, you know, when I read manuscripts, for example, and see someone use the word dramatic, I, I always strike it out and say, look, we do medicine, we don't do drama, you know, go to drama school. I was truly shocked in Liberia by two things. One, the severity of the Ebola epidemic. I mean, uh, it, it was just extraordinary. But secondly, that there was nothing there. The, the infrastructure and the capacity of the country was so, so weak. It was, I was truly surprised. And, I, you know, decades before I'd worked in Côte d'Ivoire, which is not, you know, bordering Liberia. And that was two, a couple of, you know, that was several decades ago. And it was just completely different. You know, Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea, they've all had conflict, they've had wars, they've had civil strife, but they're really, they have really been neglected and kind of forgotten. And they're at the bottom of the, any scales that you see of human development, health, etc. That's very different from East Africa and certainly Kenya, which, you know, which has made, seen extraordinary changes over the last couple of decades in terms of well, firstly, dealing with the AIDS epidemic, but extraordinary progress in child survival, life expectancy, and a change in the pattern of disease. I mean, they still have a dual pattern with a lot of infectious disease and also um, a, a rapidly emerging problem of non-communicable diseases, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, cancers, chronic respiratory disease. Um, so a very mixed picture. It's, it's development economists who are best placed you know, to ask why are some countries developed and others not. But a characteristic of these low-income countries is weakness of systems, weakness of health systems, of the educational sector, underinvestment in these, 
poor management. And of course, if you have governance, issues of corruption, if you have weakness in one sector, I mean, if you find that, you know, the public transport sector or the educational sector is weak, well, it's not going to be any different in any other sector. So there are these pervasive, intrinsic problems of systems, capacity, training, and so on. With that underlying structural problem in mind, I was curious as to where the CDC and organizations like it concentrate their resources in preparing for a pandemic like Ebola. There are four areas where we've focused, particularly disease surveillance and health information systems, the strengthening of laboratory systems, the development of the workforce, particularly in epidemiologic capacity to investigate outbreaks and things like that. And then fourthly, in the use of data, data for making decisions, and investment in implementation science, if you will, uh, operational research, more broadly referred to as implementation science. So those are some of the areas we focused on. And I must say in Kenya, the country I know best, we've seen remarkable, I, the country has changed remarkably over the last couple of decades. Moving now towards the end of the 2014 to 16 Ebola outbreak, I asked Kevin, how they finally started to get this disease under control. In Liberia, control was pretty rapidly achieved. Then there are clusters that happen and further small outbreaks, but by isolating the cases and getting enough Ebola treatment unit beds, the outbreak was contained. And then there were clusters here and there that had to be dealt with in the same way. And there were some secondary transmissions from Ebola survivors, including sexual transmission. Where is all this going? Well, DRC has, uh, well, West Africa was eventually declared Ebola free in 2016, and there were no more cases. The DRC has had three outbreaks since 2018. Uh, there was a smaller one in the Equateur province, followed by the very big one that went on for two years. And we're now coming to the end of the third outbreak in the last couple of years. That's the 11th DRC outbreak overall in Ecuador. That's just coming to an end now. Throughout this time, Katie and her colleagues at Oxford had been working away on vaccine development. The vaccine that we were involved in, in trialing was developed by uh, the US government at the NIH, NIAID. It was commissioned under George Bush's administration as a potential defense against bioterrorism. So it wasn't being developed as a kind of public health intervention. It was on a list of microorganisms that the US government thought could be rendered against them as a, a biological agent. And so for that reason, these vaccines were creeping through clinical development and they were creeping through. They'd been in development for many years before this outbreak happened. So all that really happened was we accelerated the process of the clinical evaluation and safety testing here because we have the capacity and the expertise of evaluating adenoviral vector vaccines. The timelines involved for this were quite phenomenal in terms of how long it took to submit the grant, get the grant reviewed, get ethical approval, and you know all of that happened in a fraction of the time it would usually take. And then from the time of you know first conceiving of the trial through to first vaccination, last vaccination, and publication of data was unprecedented at that time. And the Oxford team also played a key role in the manufacture of a vaccine. It wasn't just that we accelerated the clinical trials, we accelerated the, the development and manufacturing as well. And 
I think one of the things about pandemics that we learned from Ebola, one of the lasting legacies of it is that everything just happened too slowly and the money wasn't there. Whereas now there is much more funding available for outbreak pathogen vaccines, be it through CEPI or through the more usual routes of funding. But there's much more pressure to do things at a, a, a more rapid pace now and, and get these vaccines ready and deployed, you know, in a, in a more reasonable time frame. It sounded like this outbreak had a significant impact on vaccine development. It had a huge impact on a lot, a lot of different aspects of it. I mean, we've mainly focused on the sort of vaccine development and evaluation side, but it had an impact in things like, you know, the ethics of how clinical trials are performed in pandemics and how you have a clinical trial design to evaluate a vaccine when you can't ethically give people a placebo if you think there's a possibility that the vaccine or trialing might work. It's had impacts in things like whether pregnant women should be included in early stage assessment of vaccines where you know there's pandemic potential and similarly children two populations that are largely excluded from the early stage development and testing of vaccines for obvious reasons and, and reasonable reasons it's had an impact on academic publishing for example so the ebola outbreak was really the first time that we saw widespread use of preprint servers for getting data out there and rapid publication of results from clinical trials in journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, which would traditionally take much longer to publish that kind of data and The Lancet. And it's 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 shaken up so much of the normal kind of processes, you know, rapid ethical approval, rapid um, approval from things like the MHRA, all those kinds of things have been facilitated by that outbreak. So it has had a huge impact. And in terms of what the world's going to look like going forward in terms of global pandemics, even before this pandemic. I think it, it was important in opening up lots of different channels and, and speeding up lots of things that have been unnecessarily cumbersome. So that experience should make us better at dealing with future pandemics. The overwhelming thing that came out of it scientifically was that there were too many diseases that we just didn't have vaccines in the pipeline for and that nobody was prepared to fund because it's unreasonable to a certain extent to expect commercial organisations to manufacture vaccines for diseases that there is no commercial market. It's not what they do. But that doesn't mean that the world doesn't need them, which means there has to be some alternative funding for those vaccine programmes. And that's where CEPI has really stepped in to fill that gap quite effectively. With Ebola, we already had those vaccines in early stage clinical development that turned out to be highly effective against Ebola. So we, we already had the tools we needed. There just wasn't the drive to get them through and get them out and get them licensed and stockpiled and ready. And I think the more we interact with wildlife, you know, if you look at all of the emerging zoonoses, they all come from wildlife, they're all viruses. And if it's as easy to make a vaccine against something as devastating as Ebola as it is for any of those other emerging pathogens, then really there's no excuse not to push ahead and do it. And I think it's really galvanised the scientific community into sort of pushing ahead with some of those other vaccines against some of those other pathogens. So the WHO produced a document called the R&D Blueprint, which has a list of all of the diseases that they think are a priority for vaccine development. And it, that also includes disease X, and it now also includes SARS-CoV-2. And that really laid down a roadmap for what the WHO would expect from a vaccine that was going to be developed against any of these pathogens. And it's, it's a really helpful focus for vaccine developers to kind of start approaching some of these questions. And we have vaccines in development here at the Jenner against many of those uh, diseases on the, on the blueprint document. We're going to talk about disease X in a bonus episode, which we'll have recorded by the time you hear this. But for now, 
I wanted to stick with the Ebola outbreak and ask what else we might have learned. I think two obvious questions are, what is population movement doing? And secondly, is environmental change in terms of logging, the logging of forests and stuff like that, is that making a difference in just um, bringing the natural reservoir closer to human populations? One other characteristic of the West African outbreak was the enormous political relevance of this outbreak and its, its broader impact. For the first time, military were heavily engaged in the outbreak response. President Obama in mid-September of 2014 committed 3,000 troops to Liberia for several months. And the British military in Sierra Leone as well. Really rather unique. And of course, lots of discussion about the role of WHO, the strengths and weaknesses of WHO, need for reform and better application of the international health regulations and all of that. I think it's widely agreed and widely acknowledged that WHO was slow off the ground. They should probably have declared a PHIC earlier, and they didn't. That's a public health emergency of international concern. The outbreak might have come under control sooner if action had been taken earlier, and that might be one parallel that you could draw with the current outbreak as well. And finally, in DRC, very important in the, the, the 2018 to 2020 outbreak. This was in Eastern DRC in North Kivu and Ituri provinces. This is an area of, of instability and fighting. Very, very difficult and insecure area. And the ability for the world to intervene in these areas of insecurity needs a lot more thought and attention. With that in mind, I was curious to know how prepared Kevin thought we were now for future outbreaks of this nature. Well, I worry about the whole concept of preparedness. I mean, the West African epidemic was so awful and so severe, people you know, shook their heads and said, never again. Well, memories are short. And when I reflect and think, well, who is really prepared, you know, adequately prepared, properly prepared, Public health is not. The only group that really is prepared is the military. They spend their time training, doing nothing but training and preparing for something they hope will never happen. Now, I don't think the rest of society can say that. Yes, we put in resources. Yes, we you know, work on preparedness, but not to the degree that the military do for their raison d'être. And I think that merits some thinking about what do we really mean by preparedness and how much are we really prepared to do for preparedness. Finally, coming to the end of both the episode and our series, I was keen to understand from my guests how they saw Ebola in relation to other pandemics. For example, were we right to include it in our list of 10? I think it deserves to be there just because of the impact it had, even though in terms of mortality, it probably isn't the most pressing public health issue in the world at that time. I mean, I think we had 11,000, over 11,000 deaths from Ebola during the West African outbreak. 500,000 people die every year from malaria. And if you look at the resources that were pumped into dealing with the Ebola outbreak, if similar resources were pumped into dealing with malaria, you could potentially save a lot more lives. So maybe malaria ought to be on your list as well. And Brian thought a comparison between Ebola and COVID would provide useful context for my question. So I get the impression that you have some vulnerability to COVID. I think there seems to be something that we're not quite sure 
completely yet what it is. So I would say, I would say the junior staff is, is a bit like genetic roulette. If you get it, there may be something in your genetic code that means you're prone to getting severe disease. That might be what your ACE2 receptor looks like. And of course, we've never really looked at ACE2 receptors before. We've had no reason to look at genetics ACE2 receptors, but there are quite a lot of poly, a couple of polymorphisms and things that may make you more prone to getting severe stuff. Whereas Ebola just looks as though it just kills everyone if you get it. So from that token, you know, I, I, I think if I if I if I contracted COVID, then I would think I maybe had a chance. If I contracted Ebola with no treatment, then I I think probably not. But as I say, we've we've evolved. If you look at the Ebola outbreak at the beginning, mortality was quoted at eighty percent. By the end of it, it was about forty percent, and that was purely with good medical care. And similarly with SARS, um, with uh, COVID, with SARS-CoV two. If you look at the beginning, mortality in our intensive care units in the UK was probably about 60%. And in fact, now we'd say it's probably about 30%. So we've learned how to do the basic stuff without having any specific treatment, but just how to manage the illness that the patients have much better. On that more optimistic note, we'll conclude our series on the history of pandemics. We didn't set out to provide a comprehensive account of the disease outbreaks that humanity has faced, but to invite you to discover, along with us, more about 10 world events that may have had a significant impact on the way we think about and prepare for pandemics. We hope you've taken a lot from the series, and the good news is it's not quite over yet. Coming soon, we'll be releasing a bonus episode on how organisations around the world, including many people here at Oxford, are preparing for what the World Health Organisation calls Disease X. I do hope you can join us then. I'm Peter Millican, and you've been listening to Future Makers. Future Makers is created in-house at the University of Oxford The score for the series was composed and recorded by Richard Watts. Today's voice actor was me, Benjamin Morrell. The podcast is presented by me, Professor Peter Millican from Hartford College, and the episodes are produced and edited by Ben Harwood and Steve Pritchard, who've done most of the work and to whom I'm hugely grateful. And thank you, on behalf of the whole team, for listening to our History of Pandemics.